What would life look like if our good intentions were inspired enough, empowered enough, and challenged enough so that all those dreams became real, tangible good in the world? On Practice Good Podcast, you will find authentic stories, challenging conversations, and real responses that will inspire, empower, and challenge your social impact journey. But this isn't all. Good business and good programs and good social enterprise are only as good as the health of their leader. And on this podcast, we will pay special attention, not only to the good that we give to the world, but to the good that we live within ourselves, our soul care. Welcome to Practice Good, a podcast for change makers. I'm your host, Shiloh Kashima, practitioner of good, pastor, and mom of two spicy Nigerian littles. Get ready as we turn your good intentions into positive change. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today, Rudy Darden. Rudy is a Valencia College and University of Central Florida professor of English. He also serves as a Peace and Justice Institute curriculum creator, facilitator, and trainer. While at Valencia College, he has served in many positions, including vice president and president. He currently serves as the co-chair of the Inclusive Excellence Committee, where he develops and ensures equitable practice are being met throughout the Valencia College. Professor Darden is also a nationally recognized Seeking Education, Equity, and Diversity SEED curriculum creator, facilitator, and trainer, earning the certification from the University of Washington under a program developed by one of the leading experts of race and diversity, Dr. Peggy McIntosh. As an author, his articles and editorials have appeared in several educational journals on topics related to diversity and higher education, and community engagement strategies that advance the work of racial equity beyond the classroom. As a part of the Peace and Justice Institute, Rudy Darden helped develop and facilitate workshops that have become part of the regular training for every City of Orlando employee, including police officers, firefighters, the mayor, and city commissioners and officials. He works in the community and has also reached several faith-based organizations where he has been a keynote speaker and workshop facilitator across the country, advancing the work of inclusion, diversity, and racial equity. Rudy Darden affirms that his many roles and contributions to higher education and his local community further his desire and purpose to serve others, which all started with his enlisting in the Marine Corps as an active military personnel from 1999 to 2003. Rudy Darden is not only passionate about diversity and inclusion and equity, he is also my friend. He's someone we have not only shared a glass of wine with and broke bread with, he is someone that we have shared tears with, that we have shared joy with. Rudy and I were a part of a group called Rise, Conversations on Race and Unity. Oasis, our church, hosted this, partnered with the Peace and Justice Institute, along with the MLK Commission of Orlando and the Winter Garden Theater, we were able to get out a curriculum to our community six times in one year, workshops that allowed people to sit knee to knee and share their experiences of racism in our community. It allowed those of us who had stories to tell to share them It allowed others of us to sit 
and hear them and be humbled by them. And in the midst of it all, we built deep and intimate friendships. And so today, I cannot wait for you to meet Rudy. Here we go. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. (laughs) I am so glad to be a part of this conversation. And so thank you for inviting me. I'm laughing because nobody knows, but this is our third attempt to (laughs) try this thing today. So we're going to get it officially right now. But I wanted to tell you how honored I am to have you. When I started this podcast a whole one week ago, (laughs) I created this list of people that I felt like had stories that were authentic or messages that were needed to be heard by people who are making change in the world, or even just people who would challenge all those social impact change makers out there, all, all of our mindset, people who would challenge our mindset. And you were one of the first people that came to my mind. And I was like, I have to have Rudy. Um, So thank you. I'm so thrilled and honored. Well, no, I am deeply honored. I'm sure that that list uh, is one that um, is amazing (laughs) and remarkable and to be even considered uh, as one of the individuals that uh, could help just offer some insights, but also to just be a part of something that I believe uh, considering you uh, as a change maker, uh, to be partnered with you in this uh, venture is exciting for me. And again, as I said, I'm on it. So thank you. This podcast is all about practicing good in the world. It's for people mm-hmm. who really want to bring about change in the world, positive change. And right now we are in a really crazy time and there's a lot of positive change that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, why is the conversation of race, equality, equal access, and worth, and people mattering, why is it important for change makers to talk about these topics? Yeah, I think it's important uh, that we lean in because we are certainly a part of a historic moment. Yeah, every time, uh, every generation has its historic moments. Um, Every day that we live, it's considered history or her story um, as we bring that day to a close. And so um, I think there's been a collaboration and some emphasis at this moment in time in 2020, because we see the convergence of a number of factors. And I think every now and then in every generation, we see a convergence of a number of factors that tend to highlight racial disparities um, because racial disparities are at the foundation and at the core of America. And so when we think about things like the Civil War, when we think about things like Jim Crow laws, when we think about things like the Civil Rights Movement, when we think about things like in the 1980s, mass incarceration and redlining, and now here we are in 2020, um, each of those factors had other elements that applied a certain amount of pressure on society that unearthed its racial foundations. Of course, the Civil War had this kind of component where people were thinking it's about preserving a union, but it was about people who wanted to, who were willing to kill. It was about white people who were willing to kill other white people in order to own black bodies, right? And then when we think about Jim Crow, it's about white people wanting to uh, redefine and uh, re-exhibit their dominance or their perceived dominance over black people. And so they segregated themselves and they dared and written to laws, uh, you know, uh, practices that said that black people couldn't engage and white people couldn't engage with black people. And so those laws weren't just about creating what they considered a healthy lifestyle for 
communities, those laws were all about um, the degradation of black bodies. And if I could just offer just a, a narrative around the civil rights movement. There was a Vietnam War that was happening that people were saying was really what was at the precipice of racial inequality. But when you take a convergence of a number of different societal factors, what will always happen is that racial disparities in America will be unearthed because whatever is happening that uh, seems to be beyond race, um, it is carefully uh, a narrative is carefully constructed that says it's a beyond race uh, because it's the way that people want to not have to face what is a significant issue. And so I think right now with COVID, I think right now that um, COVID is global, we see uh, the unearthing of the racial inequalities. And so right now, considering history, um, history is being uh, written every day, I think it's so important for everyone, whether they consider themselves to be change makers or not, to lean in and understand that a part of their legacy is gonna be tied to this. And we saw it during the World War II uh, when we saw the Holocaust. Uh, we saw it uh, in a number of uh, facets with the war on crime or the supposed war on drugs, which was really a war uh, intended to uh, degradate and to you know, oppress black, black and brown communities. Um, some of the same terms like ghetto was used in that war on drugs campaign. Um, that was used in World War II. So we just see, keep seeing this story. And I often wonder, people who lived through those times, who chose not to respond, how their history um, is, is uh, a part of what we are continuing to experience now in 2020. Wow. I did send you this list of questions and I mm -hmm. really want to diverge away from that because I feel like your response is really bringing up some things in me that I kind of would love to process with you if you don't mind. Sure. Um, there, I mean, you know me, I have been like, since I was a, a child, have been drawn to other cultures and languages. And I, you know, I've traveled to 14 countries. My husband is born and raised in Nigeria. My children are biracial, of course. And I'm absolutely passionate about um, race issues and equality and this conversation, especially in terms of leadership in white spaces, because I mm. believe that a lot of times... Um, a lot of my white counterparts and myself, we go, I want to be diverse. I want to be inclusive. You know, there's a lot of white churches that are like, I would love for black people to come and hang out with me at my church, mm -hmm. but I don't know why they're mm -hmm. not coming. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of, you know, assumed innocence in like, I don't know why we're not more diverse. And mm -hmm. I feel like on a level one basis, like if people of color and people with of different languages, backgrounds, and cultures do not hold decision-making positions within your mm. organization, you cannot even begin to have a conversation about diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What would you say to people who are listening right now that say, you know, my heart is to make a positive difference in all of this. And, you know, whether, I mean, and maybe this is a different conversation for white leaders versus black and brown leaders, but like, do you have some thoughts for those who do want to bring positive change, but just need that next step? Yeah. You know, the next step really is understanding the foundational step or the foundation of America. Um, the reason why we have to have conversations about race and we have to give uh, the insights that others bring into the conversation about race. And I say others as in um, having a conversation about race with all white people is just not going to work. Having a conversation with all black people 
can be uh, intuitive in that Black people can bring their experiences in white spaces um, into, a, uh, and it can be actually uh, more uh, diverse than white people having a conversation. I'll, I'll talk about that maybe a, a little bit later on, but I want to really drive home the point that the foundation of America is rooted in power difference. Right. And so when you use the word bringing Black people in the space to be able to make decision, decision makers, what we're really talking about is saying, are you willing for Black people and brown people to have power? <laughs> because racial classifications were not about skin color. Racial classifications were all about who gets to have power, who gets to walk and exercise in a certain level of autonomy and independence over their own future, and who doesn't. And so when you have a white, predominantly white organization, whether it's a church, an institution, or like my educational system that is run by predominantly white people in terms of their leadership, what you're really saying is that those who are powerful in terms of making decisions, and I don't want to just use the word making decisions, I want to talk about it from a place of position of power. Right. Because we can say that people who are teachers make decisions, but they don't have systemic power. And so you might have people who um, are decision makers as supervisors over uh, their particular areas, but there's usually a person in power who is saying they want to be more diverse. They may be white uh, uh, over a predominantly white institution or over a predominantly white church space. But when you ask them, are you willing to completely put a moratorium or freeze on hiring or on bringing in any more white elders? Uh, are you putting a freeze or moratorium or bringing any more white pastors into your space? Mm. And are you simply going to say, not only will we allow the next eight to 10 people that we bring onto this staff be black or person of color, but we are going to ensure that we add seats to a table that seems like it's already full because we gotta in this moment, share the power. And the moment that I begin to have conversations with white pastors about sharing the power, about saying, you have the title lead pastor, but there's a way to reimagine that where you say that now you are a co-pastor because you've shared your power with the black person or with the mm -hmm. person of color. Now, the moment that you begin having those conversations with many white pastors, and I'm going to use the word white male pastors in this, in this context, you get a, I know I've gotten a, a kind of, now, why would I want to do that? Is there another way? And I think that speaks to the early um, uh, foundation of America where it was never intended for black people to not just have their own power. If they wanna have their own power, they can do so in their own church. Right. But if you want black people to be able to share power with you in this space so that you can get a more diverse way of looking at how God has designed people, I think that's a challenge for many white uh, pastors, particularly with many white men, uh, because uh, they're just not accustomed to honoring the power that God has uh, given black and brown folk to lead. I was having a conversation with someone and it was a group that had a diversity committee. And I was like, honestly, nothing's going to change at your church. And mm. they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, is anyone here in this room, do any of you guys have decision-making power or hold any kind of position of power to be able to make a change in this area in your church? And not one of them mm -hmm. raised their hand. And I'm like, until yeah. your leaders are interested enough in coming mm -hmm. to learn about increasing diversity and inclusion, nothing is going mm -hmm. to change. And mm -hmm. I remember one of them said to me, I talked to my pastor about this. They were very concerned and they said, just give us time, give us time. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And then they said, you know, we're trying to do this, but we can't do it so fast to where we lower our standard. Mm. And Mm. I just, I also, you know, we're talking specifically about churches here, but I also want to talk nonprofits and Uh education. Like we're talking about board members on nonprofits Uh that predominantly serve people of color and we can't lower our standards. So we don't, you know, we can't put a board member, you know, we do want black and brown people. We can't lower our standards. Like that to me gives me a pit in my stomach because I feel like that says less about people of color and more about the circle of people that you run in and the fact that you don't assume intelligence or high spiritual growth or maturity to people that look differently than you. And that just speaks about segregation, essentially your choice of who you surround yourself with. Your inner circle is not big enough to include people that you can see and observe the intelligence, Mm -hmm. the the intelligence, the creativity, the skills, the strengths in people of color. And that Mm -hmm. to me is concerning that we have leaders that can't see that naturally. Yeah. And, 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 and I love how you, uh, you know, put it into just breaking down the whole, there seems to be an already embedded understanding that when you do bring other people in that are non-white, it is a perception that we that there aren't enough people who are qualified, or we would have to lower our standard to meet those unqualified people to be in our spaces. And that, I think, sets us, that is a clear indication on what society has accepted as normal, as what is good, right. as what is right. Um, and if, if the story was written by others, I can imagine that the story may sound very similar in that uh, if Black people uh, conquered a particular space through colonization, oppression, and enslavement, I can imagine that Black people would be saying that they too would have to lessen uh, uh, the standards that they have held high in their black traditions because their once former slaves are now expecting us to fully uh, uh, see them as human, to right. see them in all of how we view ourselves in our fallible you know, uh, thinkings, but in all of how we view ourselves and our potential for greatness. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we assigned a diverse narrative to black folk specifically. Uh, and I, I sometimes you hear me use the word people of color and black folk. I'll talk about black people because of the racial hierarchy that uh, produces anti-blackness, even in the umbrella of people of color. So uh, in America, Asians may be considered people of color, but they may not have the same stigmas associated with power or leadership or aptitude, intellectual aptitude, as maybe uh, black folk have. And so I'll just kind of, you know, nuance this conversation a little bit by only talking specifically about the anti-blackness and the subjugation of, of ideas, of, of, of potential leadership that are often associated with black people. And I'll say that we need to really think about the narratives that we've crafted for what is normal, which is usually white, or ideal, which is usually white, and um, uh, the degradation of people, which is usually associated with Black people. If if there is 
a white leader out there that is in a space where they're seeing the things that are happening and maybe for the first time acknowledging the injustices that are happening right now. And they're going, I do want to do more. Um, And granted, maybe don't know what the first step is. Maybe they're leaders in a predominantly white organization. They need to, um, you know, really be more inclusive with the voices on their board, with the voices in their positions and churches. Um, you talk about educating yourself on what would, I mean, what do you have to say to people who are in a space where they're, they're yeah. being teachable right now? And maybe they haven't yeah. been before and they're saying, I'm yeah. humbling myself. I need to know yeah. what the best step is. Well, number one, I would say that in those situations, the advice that I've heard in other podcasts, and I've been on a number of different, you know, PBS and I've been on WFTV and all these other news stations where all of these experts will say, you know, what are some tools that a person can use? And oftentimes people will say, you know, from a really practical standpoint, lean in to those black and brown people who are in your circles, or who may be outside of your circles, because relationships we see and the storytelling has, uh, you know, some of the greatest potential for change. And so I would say, obviously, that that's something. But I, I want to really call out how um, when we do that, we often pick black and brown people who we think are worthy of our relational equity, right? To establish something with this person. So therein is a bias because, you know, you may not go to that black or brown person who could, who you don't think has anything to contribute in a way that's meaningful to you. And so I would say, let's pause on the whole, I got a black friend. Right. You know, let's pause on the whole, let me go and talk to this black person I know and trust. I can't tell you how many people say, I'm going to call Rudy because I know and trust him. Um, I'd rather you not call me right. <laughs> and go call somebody that you don't trust, right? Yeah. And call somebody because that, that's, a, that's a portion of opening ourselves up to the other. And so yeah. I just want to kind of dispel that before I give what I think is uh, uh, maybe a more academic approach. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, in academia, um, the lived experience is one thing, but we always say uh, that we need to balance the scholarship of the self, where we learn through others, with also the scholarship that is on the shelf. And so one of the greatest Mm -hmm. history books that I read um, is called Stamped from the Beginning. Now get this subtitle, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Right. And so so if anybody says that they have the definitive history on race and racist ideals or on racism in America, like the definitive history, I need, I need some of that. I need yeah. some of that. And so I went ahead and it's a big read. It's a heavy read. But I think the reason why this book is so significant is because this book not just chronicles what this author is saying as these definitive moments in history that shaped how we view race in America, but it's giving us multiple individuals that are well known uh, in society. Um, Abraham Lincoln, Cotton Mather, uh, Angela Davis, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, uh, George Washington. I mean, it just walks us through a number of different historical figures, and it presents the readers with insights that allows for you to see how the Native people might have viewed this experience Mm. that relates to race in America, how Black folk, how uh, Asian Japanese people viewed the internment camps. And when you get this kind of diverse storytelling, it allows you not to just be relying on that one Black friend or those two Black friends or those five Black people that you trust who may not have that kind of historical awareness and acknowledgement of things related to history and how that still you know, shows up today, but it gives us that that more complete umbrella version that I think offers... um, and dare I say it, a definitive history. And, you know, I think as you begin to read those things, I think 
that's the time afterwards to go to your black and brown friends and to be like, here is the work I've been doing. I mean, I know for my husband, when he knows what people acknowledge his blackness and which ones don't, right? And then, and then the ones that have done the work and then come back to him and say, hey, I read this book or I learned about policing in America and the history of where that comes from, or I heard this story and I want to know how this affects you. You as a you know, as a black man in America who is clearly, you know, you've worked your way up through this system essentially. Mm-hmm. And now you're at a place of kind of tenure where you're able to kind mm-hmm. of speak out more. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, that I know in any industry where they're trying to do good in the world, a lot of people of color and, you know, they don't feel like they can speak out. You know, there's a lot yeah. to, there's a lot at risk, a lot of incredible people with incredible voices who are being very silent in spaces of yeah. power. And my heart is to see this be completely eliminated and where these people can feel open to communicate and share their experiences and, you know, what mm-hmm. they can do. But like, um, you know, for, you know, people like yourself that are hoping for yeah. change, but maybe feeling a exhausted, what is some way or one way that you've really found to kind of really pour back into yourself and take care of your soul and not become hardened by these things, but keep the hope, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, it goes back to my thirst and desire to not allow one person's lived experience to define what I think would be the next steps. And so as I share some of these ideas with your listeners, um, you know, notice that Maybe some of it comes from my own personal take, but I'm going to respond to this, you know, next prompt that you've given me with more of, of, you know, looking at, you know, scholars. And there's a scholar by the name of Dr. Beverly Tatum, uh, who writes a book or who wrote a book called Why Are All the Black Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And um, I think there's something that I was able to glean from that book and from my own experiences, because that book really highlights the importance of Black people coming together in a cafeteria space as an affinity group to affirm their realities because they are part of a predominantly white institution. And she says, go into any cafeteria in America where there's a diverse student population. And what you will find is that maybe you have your Latinx or your Hispanics sitting at a table. You have your white students who you know, might be athletes and they might be a little diverse, but then you have your black students who may not be athletic, but they're, you know, they're going to be in a little table. And then you have your white students who might come from a particular area and they're going to be at a table. And sometimes people will look at that and say, why can't we all just spread out? But there is something dangerous about that in terms of telling Black people that in order to really be uh, engaged, that they need to now go and bring themselves away from the affinity group that offers an opportunity for them to be affirmed in their realities. Throughout the whole day, they are being exposed to white reality in numbers that outweigh their thinking. And so when you come into this space, um, I know there's a there's a there's a certain thing that many black men do when we see each other, whether we know the person or not, and we give them the head nod, right? We might even give them the pound <laughs> on the chest. So we give them the, and, and what that, what that does, and this is what people can carry into their spaces um, as a tool that black people can use or brown people can use uh, to build a more collective voice because it's challenging for your singular voice to be something that now shifts an entire culture. I think it's important to follow what I would call as the CIA rule, right? The CIA rule means that the first C is collective. 
right? And we need to be collective and we need to collaborate, right? So that really that's two C's, but it really means the same thing. Let's collaborate yeah. with people who we believe are like-minded and let's come together collectively. And that might mean just starting off with the one other person of color to begin to form that cafeteria table in your space so that your realities can be confirmed because and oftentimes black people may not share the same you know, collective ideas or right. the, you know, and so it's important to come together to say, hey, I just noticed this. I read this email. How did you read that? And then you get another person who, you know, is a person of color who's a part of a predominantly white space. And so the C stands for you got to really look for ways to collaborate because a singular, you know, uh, finger cannot do as much as a combined fist. Right. And so let's bring together. That's the C. The I is to innovate. Right. And so now that you have your group that's collectively come together to affirm your so your kind of, you know, uh, uh, cafeteria table. Now it's time for you all to innovate and think of things that may be missing from the space that you're in. If you follow the same thing that's there, then you're only perpetuating and modeling a racist you know, space. So now it's time for you all to come together and innovate some ideas that might bring about the kind of racial change that you're looking for, or even just affirm each other's experiences. So you can chronicle that. Uh, and, and so you can bring it up to your leaders to say, is it okay that we experience this institution like this? Mm. Uh, because here's what our experiences are collectively. And that has, that tends to hold a lot more weight than one person saying, this is what they experience. And then the A stands for alignment. Once you come together collaboratively, and you've now you know, thought of innovative ways to present what you think is a collaborative function, now it's time for you to al align that collaborative function with the vision and the goal of the space that you are a part of. You know, the vision and the goal, one of the uh, uh, guiding principles of Valencia, uh, you know, that's where I'm a tenure professor, um, is that we are what the students experience. Mm. And so because that is such a valued a uh, principle for who we are at Valencia, we had to say, here's what collaboratively we've come up with as our experience. Here's some innovative ways that we think could address this. And we know that this aligns with the principle and the vision or the guiding principle of our organization. And I think when you do that, you kind of can begin to have this kind of organic approach uh, because it's one person, it's one thing for one person to say it, but when we designed the scholar strike, which was a, a part of a national movement that happened September 8th and September 9th, uh, it started with myself and one other person saying, let's come together and talk about what our experience has been at Valencia. And then we looked for a couple of others and we found about just through email, we found about 40 uh, members that were uh, willing to put together the ideals to say, this is what we experienced and here's how we're going to think about innovative ways to address this. And then lastly, we went to our leadership and said, hey, we know what you say is the vision for Valencia and we want to align what we say is a vision for Valencia. And uh, can you partner with us in this scholar strike that is really about police brutality and really about teaching and, and, and really acknowledging um, you know, what are some of the social injustices that we in this institution experience? Well, let me tell you, it went from 40 to 73 people to after the first day of the strike, 260 people officially signed a document with the college. And then wow. by the second day, there were over 370 employees <laughs> at Valencia who signed up to say that they are a part of, of wanting awesome. our college to move in a different direction. So uh, again, you talk about, you know, change, you know, how do we practice good? How do we do good? Well, it really can start with one person collaborating with another person, getting some momentum going thinking about innovative ways. And before you know it, you can have over 300 and some people 
uh, coming together to say, let's take a stand with, and that included um, even our leadership. Our, soccer, our president even came on board, a white man right. came on board and was like, let's do this. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. So whenever we think about also diversifying any kind of space, there's one thing that I want to make sure I leave people with. I gave you the acronym already, CIA, Collaborate, yeah. Innovate, and Align. Uh, there's another easy acronym called RAP, R-A-P. I often look into organizations and say, can we rap about this? And what I mean by rap about it is, can we talk about representation? Can we talk about accountability? And Ooh. can we talk about policy? Ooh, and I so like you cannot have a diverse space without talking about representation. And I talked about that in terms of bringing more people in, more people of color into your space to share power. What right. I didn't talk about is the accountability piece. We have to hold organizations accountable by asking for more transparent ways in which they show racial equity, not racial equality, racial equity. And what that means is looking at ways in which we haven't been racially just and we call ourselves out and we tell the narrative on how we did not do the right thing in this moment because there are too many black and brown people who have left organizations who feel like in their leaving, the organization never really held themselves accountable to the way that they have hurt others. And I think it's time for, and it, this is something straight out the Bible in terms of just confessing our sins and what that does uh, yeah. for us and what that does to cleanse us and present ourselves, uh, you know, before the father. And so I just think that that's so important that we think about what it means to hold ourselves accountable as an organization that produce uh, a racist by evidence um, outcomes in terms of a mostly white uh, people in leadership. That is racist. Right. Yeah. There's no way that that could be seen any other kind of way. So and the last part, the P is about policies. So once you have representation and you've already said you're going to hold yourself accountable, then I think it's so important for you to look at some of the policies that led to the racist uh, uh, accountable practice or lack thereof that led to the lack of representation. And that policy piece should be something that we say we're going to look at each of our policies through a racial lens. And that racial lens won't just be through white folk. It'll be through this new representation model that is going to hold ourselves accountable to the policies that we see um, as maybe being problematic. Rudy, I continue to be inspired by our conversation. Today is just such a breath of fresh air. Mm. I appreciate the work that you do. And, yeah. and I want to say thank you. Thank mm. you for speaking out. Thank you for giving permission to the world to speak their truth and to stand in, you know, solidarity with brothers and sisters that are different, look different, have different backgrounds, different stories, mm -hmm. different experiences. I appreciate it. And yeah, I appreciate wow. the work that you're doing in the community. And I hope to have you back again one day. Definitely. Definitely. I appreciate this opportunity. So thank you. So did you guys love that interview? I definitely did. I hope if you loved it, you would share it with a couple of friends. You'll also go to iTunes and give a quick review and don't forget to hit subscribe. Thanks so much. I'll see you soon.